and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. So let's head on over to that literary aisle where we'll delve into Conan the Barbarian Epic Collection, both volume one and I think we've got here that Ray's going to delve maybe into a little volume two, too. Our land hole. There's our literary aisle. All right. Now that we're on a literary aisle, wow, what an epic series. What, I, I guess, as we're looking at these, you know, you've read some Robert E. Howard, so have I. We understand which, and thank you, Roy Thomas, for being explicit about this in his Barbarian Life book, which one of these stories here were actual adaptations and which ones were originals and which ones were inspired works. And it, like you had mentioned before, Ray, it gets challenging at times to be able to distinguish between all of them, particularly when you get a little deeper into the series, because Roy did such an effective job of channeling the the voicing, the styling of what a Conan story should be about. Yeah, the writing is all of one piece. He sort of gets the style and he does a really good job. Like you said, he not only acknowledges it in his book, but if you watch the the credits in the comics, he does a good job of saying like inspired by a Robert E. Howard poem or inspired by like or you know, he'll he'll note what what the source material is and, and if there's no note about the source material, you can you can expect that it's a Roy original, right? But if you're not watching those, you wouldn't really know the difference. Yeah, and and that just speaks volumes. It does, right? That's pretty amazing because because this is one of the kingpins, one of the found uh, cor- cornerstones of sword and sorcery, you know, writing, and to sort of have your own writing be on par with Robert How- Robert E. Howard's uh, for for his titular character, for his most well known character. That's that's saying a lot. It it is it is. So you know, there is a plethora here of stories within both Volume One, which was. 1 through 13, and then they had a little little teaser in there, Chamber of Darkness, which I think was the teaser of where they were hoping to evolve whatever barbarian character would it, it would end up being, the Conan character. So you see earlier renderings, It's the character's not called Conan, but you can see where Barry Windsor Smith was feeling out the actual comic book depiction here of Conan would ultimately be. That was a funny little twist of a story, right? It, it had a narrative frame of the the writer, so the sort of avatar of Roy himself, writing the comic in the beginning and the end of the story, and in the middle you get the sort of fantasy tale. And it was it was clever. It was a neat little piece, and it was interesting to include. I don't know that they had to include it, but it does. It is a nice little nod to like where Conan came from, like the the precursor to Conan in the in the Marvel line. Funny little twist at the ending. I'll give it away, but it was you know fun little story. But yeah. It's, it's just sort of a note, right? It's almost like a prologue. You could sort of skip over it and get right into the Conans. I will say this from a top-down view. This is something I found. I've, I found it really satisfying to read the two in parallel, and I would recommend that anybody do it that way. You know, you read read the chapter read the chapter in Roy's book first, and then read the issue of the comic. And he, he even helps us by putting the cover of the comic in the pages of his book so that you know exactly where you're at. Because sometimes he goes a little far, far afield sometimes and talks about Savage Sword of Conan and some other things. And so you might get a little, uh, you know, but but so it's cool that he does that. He is very punctuated in 
and they're easy, easy reads. It only takes maybe 10 minutes or so, you know, of reading before the comic to get Roy's take on it. So Roy's book is a chunky book, and I think he's it's in two volumes. I haven't bought this. Maybe I did buy the second volume of his book yet, but I haven't read it. And then you've got the collected Conans. So there's two volumes of those out so far. They haven't put out the third volume. But if you read all the way through first volume and the second volume of the Conan comics, you will only get halfway through Roy Thomas's book <laughs> if you're reading issue by issue, which is funny. So he writes, uh, his book is going to cover like, you know, three or four volumes worth of Conan's, the first book alone. And I think the, I went ahead and read volume two, partly because I was so into the book, I wanted to keep reading and I didn't want to read ahead in Roy's book and, you know, not have the comics run in parallel. They're kind of um, interesting together because they're basically the lifespan of Barry Barry's work as a penciler on Conan. Barry does almost all, he does all of volume one and almost all of volume two. There's just a few departures in volume two. So it's really worth moving on to volume two. We'll talk a little bit about the story in both later, I think. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a really cool read. So Ray, in volume one, did you have any particular favorites as far as those issues were concerned? I know for me, I thoroughly enjoyed issue number six, which was Devil Wings over Shadazar, and also issue nine, which was the Garden of Fear. And when looking at those two volumes, you just mentioned Barry, this being his run, and he had named several incredible heavyweights here as far as influences for his work. Jack Kirby, Pre-Raphaelites, Alphonse Mucha, Gustav Klimt, Shakespeare, Dickens, Harold Pinter, The Beatles, and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, it, th- this is some. It, these are some interesting muses, if you will, for for the work. So, uh, when you were taking a look at Barry visually here, let's say in Volume One, uh, do you see any of those influences bleeding through, or did they really come to life more in Volume Two? No, they totally did. They did uh, come into play, and all. I I'll, I think three in particular. Uh, first, the Pre-Raphaelites for composition uh, and light, you know, they're kind of known for their, well, I, I just think it's, you know, in the, in the kind of the way the figures are treated, I think that's sort of pre-Raphaelite. I could see that one. Um, I really think the strongest one is Gustav Klimt. Um, he's best known for the painting, the kiss, uh, which is, he uses a lot of gold foiling on his painting. So you can picture it. Uh, I think most people would know the painting if I could describe it well enough. It's a vertical painting with two uh, people standing up embraced, you know, like in a kiss, but they're, uh, it's very decorative and stylistic, right? So there's a lot of gold. There's a lot of patterning, like little, um, you know, uh, circles within circles and uh, just different textures. It's very Art Nouveau kind of feel, Art Deco, Art Nouveau. Uh, and uh, so you, I see a lot of that in the way that Barry fills like every surface with texture. And he does that increasingly. It does certainly get even more so in volume two. And in fact, ultimately, I think it's what led to his burnout on the series, which is, I think, you know, he made some exasperated comment about how Roy wanted to write a, a blankety blank epic every single issue. But I think it was because he was trying to, you know, make the drawing so like accomplished in each frame that it was hard for him to keep that production level up. He he, he was really his own worst enemy there. But it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. Um, and I, and I you know, a little bit of Jimi Hendrix. I think that I think the and the Beatles, I guess, too, in that respect, it's the kind of psychedelics similar to the way Ditko brought 
some of that into the comics, but also different stylistically. I, so I do, I do see some of those influences in there. Sometimes people name their influences and I can't necessarily see them, but in this one, I, I totally get it. Yeah. I, when looking at Windsor's work was really impressed with the level of detail in here. Cause as you said, right, he really set this bar incredibly high. Cause you knew in the first couple issues, he was, still of the mindset, hey, I'm trying out for this thing. I hope I can keep this gig. And based on the sales, getting ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up. And like you said, Roy egging them on and going, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at this. Look what we're doing. We got to keep it up. We got to keep it up. It is mind blowing to get this level and quality of work through an entire volume and done in this. You begin to run out of compliments here. I really, really, really like it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's perfect. I mean, there's times, there's times when it's a little awkward, um, but but it never comes off. I mean, I thought it was always like admirable. Always, you know, I'm fairly picky, and I just thought it was always really entertaining to watch his drawings. And he just really plays with space a lot, and perspective, and and texture, and all these things. He's got a lot going on in each one of these that you could really stare at him for quite a while. Did he mention? I, for some reason, I was thinking he also mentioned uh, Maxfield Parish. But I don't know where I got that in my head. So, but I, I do, I do see that like his, you know, he was just a, he's a person that, that was really influenced heavily by style. And I think at the same time, you know, he took those things and made it his own. Um, I think where he is the most inconsistent is actually not in the sort of representation, the way he composes panels and textures and things, but it's in the character of Conan himself, right? We see a lot of small changes in Conan over time, over this volume, and into the second volume. The first being the the two forehead horns. Like he's got this, you know, originally we can all sort of, well, people who read comics would sort of like imagine that first cover, right? With Conan standing there and he's got the, he's got a horned helmet, but instead of the horns uh, coming off the side, you know, like the kind of old school, you know, fanciful Viking style, which they never really had horns on their helmets, but, you know, and then, you know, they're moved around to the front more like Loki's horns, right? But, but shorter. And that, um, he dumps that, what, after like seven or eight, issues maybe. And then there's another time when he draws Conan with this really weird cape that is, uh, it's more like a shaw or like a fringe that goes around his, the top of little noodly. <laughs> it's like a flapper's dress or something really weird. And I thought, and I remember even Roy in the book saying like, I didn't, I didn't know about that, but it kind of grew on me. And I was like, yeah, it does kind of grow on you. So he takes some chances, right? With this stuff. And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it is. It, it's really cool to watch this evolution happen in, in the comic. And for those whose only impression of Conan is the muscle-bound Arnold Schwarzenegger depiction from the films, you look at this Conan and how Barry drew him. He's wiry strong. Yeah, he's cut, but it's a lean, mean kind of a panther you know, strength to, to Conan. Well, this is the middle ground. Right. Like Robert E. Howard did not. Robert E. Howard's Conan is, is really more of a soldier type in a way. Like he's a barbarian, yes, but he so he doesn't belong in an army. But he's uh, what I mean by soldier type is he, he wears a lot of clothing. He's not walking around in a loincloth. Uh, that's that comes with Marvel. Really, that's that's they they created that. Even the phrase and, and Roy mentions this, the phrase Conan the Barbarian, those three words is are never used in that sequence in any Robert E. Howard book. 
right? He mentions that Conan is a barbarian, but he never says Conan the Barbarian, right? And so it was really crazy to think just how influential Marvel and and really Barry's drawings were on what has become everybody's understanding of Conan. If you ask people to describe Conan or point to Conan or draw Conan, they're going to draw this Conan. They're not going to draw... Like, if you go back to some of the Frazetta paintings, they're, they sometimes are shirtless too, but a lot of times he has on full armor and helmet and the whole bit. So, yeah, the kind of muscle-bound freak... Arnold sort of brought some of that with it, uh, but it also starts here with the comic book muscles, right? Um, they they sort of grow over time. Uh, he starts off a little more, like like you said, panther-like and wiry. And so, yeah, this is, I think Marvel played a huge role in defining the pop icon of Conan, um, more so than the books ever did, really. Very true. And you know what I also appreciated throughout this series and you begin to experience it here in volume one but that is the tip of the hat to iconic characters of fantasy literature and none better ray than here in issue number six which is the devil wings over shadazar where we are introduced to black rat and fafnir <laughs> Right. In an alleyway, appropriately enough. Right. Like they just kind of I love it. Um, you asked me before, like, there were some things I liked about the, you know, some things are notable for me. And they uh, one of the things is this kind of like dropping in of, of pop culture characters, sometimes with permission and sometimes with not not. Right. And so here's one where he's taking Fafford and the Grey Mouser from Fritz Lieber's Lankmar series. And he's dropping him in here in disguise as Black Rat and Fafner, which is hilarious. And even they're kind of true to character. And so they're dropped into this one. He brings another Robert E. Howard character. I believe Cole appears in the first volume. Is that right? In the second volume, uh, the second volume kicks off with Elric and brings in Red Sanja as well. Sonya and Sonya. He's he's very careful to like spell that out. S-O-N-Y-A, right? Sonya. Um, and uh, Fafner makes a return in the second volume as well and becomes actually a, a, quite a main character for a little while. So I did like all those drop-ins quite a bit. People groan a little bit when they see Elric at the beginning of volume two because he's in the goofy hat that was painted by, on, on one of the paperback covers done by an artist that I absolutely love, Jack Gauguin, who's very stylistic, had drawn Elric with this gigantic sword and a big like pointed Phoenician style hat right and a lot of people hate that hat but that hat makes the appearance in, in Conan and I I happen to like it <laughs> I'm in the minority though no it's it's all good and actually is of its time I mean it it definitely looks like something that came out of the 60s well it makes him a little it makes him not quite so western right and I think Elric always had a little bit of a mysterious vibe and I, I don't like not everything has to look like medieval fantasy, right? And, I, and so I appreciated taking a little bit of a chance with his costuming and being a little different. Other things I really liked in this first volume, uh, clearly the Tower of the Elephant. It's a masterful story, one of Con one of Robert E. Howard's best Conan stories. It translates really well into the comic, a great comic story as well. Kind of breaks the bounds of, of fantasy in a way that like early, early sword and sorcery fantasy wasn't what people think of fantasy today. It had less, less of defining wall between itself and science fiction and horror. And you really see that in Tower of the Elephant. And I won't say anymore because it's spoilers, but yeah, it, it isn't just sort of purely fantasy. So the other two things I'd mentioned out of this that I liked was... Uh, 
I like the characters. You mentioned characters before of uh, Zukala and Zephra, the old wizard and his daughter, who's the were tiger. Um, that that was a cool set of characters that came back. There was also I forget the woman that um, that he pals around with for a while. That's a real piece of work that is is uh, very self serving and kind of <laughs> like betrays him a couple times. So I, I remember, yeah, I think she's in the first volume. Uh, but Garden of Fear you mentioned, and that's a really cool story. That one first of all has a lot of really neat visuals in it that I that I enjoyed. So it happens in this kind of, uh, this woman is stolen, right? She's uh, carried away by this winged man, essentially. Right, Jenna, that's the character I was thinking. Right, so, um, and uh, Conan and going here, it kind of happens like almost like a hidden valley that's like walled off. And you almost get a lost world sense because there's, as he goes through this big wall, there's like woolly mammoths and some other odd things. This is a good example. He gets to this tower and there's this, uh, you know, very tall you know, it's just a just a single cone, right? Like of a tower, and around its base are, is this field of of white flowers, like poppies or lotuses or something around the base. Roy does a great job. Roy Thomas does a great job of telling us like what he had to do to get around the Comics Code Authority. And one of the things that made me laugh was when they uh, when somebody got impaled with a sword, they couldn't show like the sword coming out the backside. So sometimes you'll see these people essentially getting hoisted up on a sword, and the back of their tunic will be peaked up, but it won't break. Right, like the sword won't come through. <laughs> It's like they're made out. It's like they're made out of a sheet of uh, aluminum or something. And but this one was a great little bit of a story how they got around the Comics Code Authority. So they drew. They would they would send the drawings into the Comics Code so they'd see them in black and white, right? And so they see this field of flowers and it's just a field of flowers. But and there's kind of a little bit of a line that might hint at something's happening, but you don't really get it until you see the visuals where the flowers end up uh, drinking your blood. Like if you walk through them, you know they're sharp and they'll cut you and drink your blood. And the the white flowers hours turn pink and then red in the story and like you would have never the comics code authority never got a chance to see that right and so he was very clever about this sort of like um, almost like cold war with the comics code authority and, and it's a great place where it shows up but it, it was a cool story and i think all of the stories in the first volume i don't think there were any dogs um i enjoyed all of them right i i, I and and there's not even that many that i would say are are just like runaway standouts but yeah it's good good stuff oh it was consistently solid that that first volume i think that's the best way to describe it now you read volume two what what were your highlights for volume two other than you grinning from ear to ear at the sight of the uh, hat wearing elric yeah right so um that it was interesting because they did a good job of introducing some of the themes from moorcock that are are very different than conan themes like conan's themes are uh magic is treacherous and um um, the world doesn't owe you anything. You know, the gods don't care. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, live by your own resources. Don't quit. That kind of, you know, he has that kind of vibe, right? Moorcock has a, um, it's not antithetical to that in any way. It's just different, right? Moorcock has this vibe about the kind of universal forces of chaos and law and the gods are very real and they mess with people a lot, right? And you're you're uh, you're better off without them, oddly enough. Like Conan sort of has a god that doesn't care. And so he's fine with that god. But then like Elric has gods that are constantly trying to control him. And, and, you know, it's basically the, 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 uh, the story is they're real, but you sort of wish they weren't. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so he, he, they do a good job of bringing in some of that chaos and, and, uh, law war into the story. And I thought it was good. It was not amazing as a story, but it was a good, like 
preview of Michael Moorcock's works, uh, maybe lead you into reading some Elric and Melnibidae. But for me, the standout bit of uh, of the second volume, there's there's really two things. One of them is there's a multi-issue war between the Turanians and the Hyrcanians. Um, and it happens where Conan is on this island um, and there's kind of a, like a to- uh, like a, a toppling of an ancient civilization and they end up in the water. And, and he and Fafner, uh, who are on this island, uh, are at sea and they get picked up by a Turanian vessel on its way to war with Hyrcania. Um, and Hyrcania has stolen this uh, living idol. Um, it's actually a person, but it's like an iconic religious figure. Um, and so there's a little bit of playing around with religion. But Roy mentioned that he based this series, this basically the last half of volume two, on the Iliad. And it's very clear, once you understand that, that, that he did. So the Iliad for people who don't know, there's really two classic works by Homer, the mythic Greek poet. Um, there's the Odyssey, which tells the story of Odysseus trying to get back from the Trojan War and all the trials and tribulations he encounters on his way sailing back from the Trojan War. And there's the Iliad, which which is the 10 years of the Trojan War itself. It was a long war. It's like a siege war. It's There's a lot of heroes like matching up against each other. There's a lot of tricks played by either side to try to break the, the stalemate. And that is depicted you know, sort of in a way in this in this second volume of the comics between the Turanians who pull up to this big seawall with their boats and set up a siege and the Hyrcanians who are who are hauled away in their fort, fortress, probably out, out uh, you know, not very well um, populated, but with the security of their defenses around them. And then the kind of tricks each play sneaking into areas to try to, you know, like open the gates or um, using magic to try to turn the tide, things like that. Um, he does a really good job with that. And so you get uh, three major drop-ins in volume two. The first one was Elric, the second one I mentioned is Fafner, who is a part of this war. And then the third one is Red Sonia shows up as a, uh, almost like a mercenary on the Hyrcanian side. So, or actually not on really anybody's side now that I think about it, but, <laughs> but so it's, it's, um, and then, then the other, so I said, that's, um, I guess the other thing I want to say about volume two is the art. Uh, so Bushima, or not Bushima, Barry draws most of the work in the second volume. But you, and you had mentioned this before, that Barry was not Roy's first choice to do Conan. Uh, I believe his first, his first choice probably would have been Bushima. And then, and, and he also thought about Gil Kane, but he went to Barry because they didn't have the money. They didn't, they didn't want to pay the rates for either of those two guys who were, who were established. Right. So, so that went with Barry, well, by this time, Barry's rates are getting up there. He's kind of comparable. Um, he's getting to the point where he's almost a Gil Kane or a, a Bashima. But, um, when Barry first starts to burn out, he basically quits once and then comes back for a few issues and then quits again for real. And I think it was clear in Roy's book that he preferred Barry's style, but maybe not Barry's flakiness, right? Like, <laughs> like I think like it, I, he was he was um, okay to see Barry go because he just was tired, I think, of trying to talk him into doing more work. And so he, he embraced uh, Bushima. Uh, but so there's one issue that Gil Kane uh, draws and then there's a couple I think one or two issues that yeah there's a couple issues that uh, Bushima draws and uh, in the first one um, Bushima is inked by his brother Sal uh, and then um, and then they switch over to this guy named Chan who was uh, incorrectly um, accredited as Chua but the interesting thing about that is so you got Barry's very textural very very texturally heavy drawings right very intricate um, uh, almost um, a little fuzzy at times right like he doesn't have those kind of 
super clean, hard lines that somebody like a Bushima does or a Gil Kane. So when they switch over to, to Bushima, the very first, it's quite, it's a little bit of a shock, right? You get these very strong comic lines, very well drawn. Um, but the inking really isn't up to snuff. Um, you know, I'm just going to say it like it's pretty straightforward. Um, and then when you, when they bring Chan in, he sort of adds back some of the texturalism that Barry had established. And then you get this really nice fusion of heavy um, ornamental, oriental style texturing with this straight hard lines of Bishima, and I think that's where it kind of comes on. You can see it transition into like the next run, you know, the next age of that comic. So it's it's really a great, the two volumes together make a really great uh, you know, book you know, bookends, like you know, a nice set of uh, two volume work of uh, Barry's sort of life in Conan. Wow. We've covered a lot of territory here. <laughs> they- yeah, sorry, I did my cell job there for volume two, and I'm, I'm hoping that I'll get people to read it. But I, I really do. I really did enjoy it. I didn't, didn't start off. I think the first volume is much more like fun sword and sorcery. The second volume is much more gritty. Um, and so it depends on what you like. But I, I enjoyed them both pretty equally by the end. Yeah, and although I didn't delve into volume two, I went over to sort of Conan because curiosity got the best of me. When Roy was mentioning in the Barbarian Life book that Barry was not his first choice, and that you know then uh, John Buscema would come in and be the primary on Savage Sword of Conan, I was like, okay, well, I got to see what Buscema's take on the Conan character is. And when I looked at Buscema's take, I completely know now why we got what we got in the 1980s on the movie screen because that that it that is the iconic depiction of that character in how that character that was the template on how that character would evolve in the future on film and in comics and, and of a little side note i mean it was really cool that marvel was able to get the licensing for elric to be included in two issues and uh, in that two-parter, and then I guess the option to guest appear now and then. Uh, but the reason they couldn't get the first labor uh, characters was because DC over on there. Now here, here's something for you, folks. You you, you had the Conan series really picking up steam for Marvel, and of course, you know when we're talking the big two here, DC can't sit idly by. So they go out and they grab the licensing from Fritz Labor to do Five from the Great Mouser. And they decide to do it in a brand new anthology series that they're going to call Sword of Sorcery. And now, of course, we read that last year and uh, gave our. Uh, no, Howard Schenken. <laughs> Howard Schenken. I know because you've been you've been reading a lot of Warlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great stuff, too, which which is really begging for. Uh, you Ray and, and JJ to, to do a uh, to do a, a a review here in the future. That's yeah, because that that would be spectacular. But getting back to this this the era here that we're talking about, the seventies was just ripe with opportunity for sales because fantasy was selling, and all of the groundwork had been done for that there in the 60s. And you would even see fantasy permeate into science fiction. When we look at Star Wars, Star Wars did so much in 1977 to help out fantasy. 
I, and really, because it really is. It is. It's a space fantasy. It's really not hard sci-fi. I'll say this: though, science fiction always had. I tend to think that started with Star Wars, and, and that's just maybe our perspective is the age we are. But you know, there was always the the Buck Rogers and the Flash Gordon and the Tom Corbett and the the, the Lensman, the different space operas from before that had a lot of fantasy elements. Um, oh, that's a good point. Good point. So. Any last thoughts while we're here on the literary aisle of either the story or art, other than to say, I think we both enthusiastically endorse this experience of pairing up barbarian life and getting that behind the scenes input from Roy with the actual works themselves. Yeah. I think um, th- there's something about the the place where, the literature and the best of the literature and the best of the comics overlap. That's really magical. And I think if you just want to dip your toe in, if you don't want to like really invest in, you know, Roy's book and the volume of comics and, and uh, you know, sit down and spend hours with it. There's two issues that I would point out. One of them was in volume one, but I'm sure you can get it as a single issue, which is the, we've mentioned the tower of the elephant, which is a, one of uh, Robert E. Howard's most respected stories. And it's just done a really you know, it's really done justice in the comic. Okay. So you get the best of Robert E. Howard and you get the best of Barry Windsor Smith and you get the best of Roy Thomas. Okay. Adapting that into a story. Um, and then in volume two, there was one where he, he does the frost giant's daughter, which is another really iconic, uh, Robert E. Howard story. Um, that one's a little interesting in the sense that it, uh, first appeared in savage, uh, savage sort of Conan, savage tales. What is, what's the other line? Yeah, Savage Sword of Conan, and and it was a little bit more, a little bit less G-rated, if you will, on that one, because they had to worry about the comic. The Savage Sword didn't have the um, didn't have the Comics Code authority, so they were able to make some, um, you know, some nudity, a little bit of nudity in there, like partial nudity in there. But they, um, but it was in black and white, so uh, they took the, took the same drawings and just kind of punched them up and did them in color uh, for the comic, and so, so you can read it in either one, depending on what you like. But um, it, it's really a masterful telling. And, uh, and, uh, that issue I mentioned too about the, um, which is just really interesting technically, uh, is the, in volume two is the issue where they run out of time and they had to go the last three or four pages of the book is done and heavy. He told Barry to do the pencils really heavy cause they didn't have time to ink it before it went to color. And, that, and so it's a very different look when you see it. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't know Roy's, this is a case where if you hadn't read Roy's book, you wouldn't know what was happening, right? Why it looked the way it did. So it's just, it, just a lot of interesting technical things. You're going to get a lot out of it if you like comics as a media, um, if you like Conan as a character, if you like sword and sorcery as a genre. I mean, there's just like a, a really broad appeal to to reading these two things together. So, Ray, to round out our review here, I'd like to go into a little RPG inspiration. And since we're talking Appendix N here, and that being the literary foundation for Dungeons and Dragons and Gary Gygax sharing essentially with all of the players of, of the game, his sources of inspiration to create uh, storytelling at the table. Conan in particular, and the fact that this comic came out in 1970, and then you had the ramp up there, the books happening and the rediscovery of Robert E. Howard. What influence do we see here in the creation of Dungeons and Dragons happening? And then I think these pretty much speak for itself, but TSR would develop and actually get licensing for Conan, the barbarian modules 
for their advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and there would be the creation of a Conan role-playing game. Yeah, TSR did the role-playing game um, in the 80s, I believe. 1985, I think, is uh, about the time they, they picked it up. Maybe maybe a little earlier, 1984. Um, there's been a number of Conan, Conan role-playing games, actually. GURPS did it. Um, more recently, I think there's one by uh, Modiphius. I think Mongoose did it once. So it's a, it's a pretty hot uh, commodity or intellectual property among role-playing games because it's so influential. I think the 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 real point to make is that in 1974, when Gar- when Gygax wrote the um, three little book edition of D and D, which was the original, not a lot of people think of that as D as like the original D and D because most people are familiar with the the first edition that came out in this in the late 70s. But he named uh, and that and the later edition had what we call Appendix N, which was a bunch of list of of authors that influenced him. But if you go back to the 1974 books. He only names like three or four authors that influenced him there. One of them is Edgar Rice Burroughs and like the, the Barsoom tales, but he, he names Conan, you know, he doesn't name Tolkien, for instance, he doesn't name a, um, but he does name Lieber. So he names Lieber, uh, Burroughs and, and Robert E. Howard uh, and Els Brogdy Camp also uh, because of the Complete Enchanter series. I think those are the four that he names as influential. So Conan was hugely influenced, uh, hugely um, uh, was a part of his vision for D&D. And then later Gygax even wrote some stories on his own uh, that were Gord the Rogue that are clearly, um, you know, clearly heavily influenced by Conan. So it was, I think it was a, a very a foundational, um, you know, conceptually to the game. And of course we would see this perpetuated out through the lifetime or, or legacy of Dungeons and Dragons. And then of course, all of the OSR, developed products which have been variations off of or utilizing the core mechanics of dungeons and dragons prime example of this one the most overt being the astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of hyperborea i mean that right there is the encapsulation of the conan age in a role-playing game right so you get um you know conan and cull and uh, many of the other sword and sorcery things are are infatuated with these lost lands like atlantis like lemuria um you know like hyperborea and uh so and you know a lot of the names used in conan are from from those right the names of lands and so it's yeah, it's it's just uh, it really permeates that this this old source and sorcery. Story. People think of the Tolkien influence, and that's certainly part of it. Like there's a heavy Tolkien influence, and that also grew out of the fantasy, you know, movement of the '60s with the hippies uh, being infatuated with Lord of the Rings and things. So that's I mean that's kind of one side of fantasy, but this this other side is the Conans, the Moorcocks, the you know Paul Andersons, the and I and I um, Conan is one of like the, the quintessential figures. In fact, he's um, if we can name like in D and D, there's certain named classes right um and by the t- by the time you have uh, you know like the s- sort of first edition forward you, you there are certain classes there um and second edition i can't remember when the barbarian came in actually but the ranger was always there because of aragorn but the barbarian is there because of conan right and the rogue is there because of of the gray mouser so you can draw parallels directly to fictional characters in the game and that's that's where you know the barbarian definitely comes from conan and it comes from um if if i'm going to be really clear about it it comes from the marvel conan and the movie conan it doesn't come from the book conan when 
when Gygax wrote the first uh, Dungeons and Dragons, he didn't have a barbarian class. He had a fighting man class, and that would have come from the Robert E. Howard type of Conan, who's a, you know more of a mercenary or soldier of fortune, right? Um, whereas the later barbarian comes from the the loincloth wearing, it's sort of like a cross between that soldier of fortune and Tarzan, you know, uh, that you get Conan. Yep, exactly. As a matter of fact, that barbarian class would actually be a subclass of fighter when it would come out. Also appeared in the uh, cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it's correct. That is correct. The D&D cartoon. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Who <laughs> was the barbarian and then had the, uh, had the uh, companion um, uh, uni, uni the unicorn. That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. So Ray, I want to thank you uh, for coming in today and reviewing Conan the Barbarian, our Appendix N selection in celebration of Appendix N month back in March, where we read Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1 by Roy Thomas, and also took in Conan the Barbarian Epic Collection, The Coming of Conan, Volume 1, which brought us Conan the Barbarian, Issues 1 through 13, a little material from the Chamber of Darkness, and of course, you enthusiastically also knocked out the epic collection of volume two and if you want to be a completist folks and i know you can't fully complete the bringing together both barbarian life and every one of the comics that is addressed but this will get you close i would highly encourage you to do exactly what ray did so ray any last thoughts no i i just i wanted to thank you for for allowing me to be on the show and for actually bringing this book to my attention i'm not sure i would have known about the roy thomas book if you hadn't uh I haven't sent it my way, and it, it dramatically increased my enjoyment of the comics. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now, let me tell you of the days of high adventure.